Good morning. It's a great, uh, a great meaning, I think, that we are here this morning, representing a very broad spectrum of faith and goodwill in this uh, city. As a Londoner, I always know that the further north I come in the country, the more friendly people become. And I think Manchester is a place where our own community has deep roots going back. In fact, I just met somebody who said they were part of the very first Christian meditation group that started here in the, uh, in the late 70s. What makes it especially significant for us to be here is that we are here a few days after the official and very beautiful commemoration of the arena bombing on the 22nd of May last year. And quite rightly, the focus of that gathering was on the grief of the families who are still carrying and will always carry that grief in their hearts. The personal wounds of such a tragedy must always take precedence. But today, in a different kind of gathering, we also hold the living memory of those 23 who were killed and 250 who were wounded and their families and friends and all those who survived but with perhaps deep and lasting shock and trauma. So we hold all these individuals and families in our hearts but with a special emphasis upon the contemplative dimension of this tragic event, which nevertheless, because of the human spirit, has the potential to produce good. So I invite you just to begin this day, in which silence will be a very important component, that we just begin with a few moments of silence conscious of what brings us here, conscious of our deep connection with each other and with those who have suffered and with those who are working across the whole spectrum of belief for a more just and peaceful world in which these tragedies may be prevented in the future.
When I leave here this evening, I go to spend a few days of quiet retreat myself in a place called Bear Island, which is a beautiful little island in the mouth of Bantry Bay in West Cork. My mother came from there, and it now has a smaller population of about 200. Some years ago, there was a a personal family tragedy when a little girl died in a domestic accident. And they took little Ashlyn immediately up to the hospital in Cork City, where she survived for a few days and then died. And the family, of course, were in deep shock and grief, and they made their way back to the island. When they came back, they found that the house which they had left, just, you know, just left all the doors open and left the, the lights on, that the house had been tidied up and cleaned from top to bottom, all the rooms had been remade, and enough meals had been cooked and put in the freezer for the next few days, and even the grass had been cut. And it was all done anonymously, but everybody knew it was the love and the friendship of this island community that had, uh, had done it and supported them and were themselves really in deep grief and shock. And that has always been for me a, a symbol of the power of human nature to see beyond itself and to reach out to those in immediate grief and pain and to bring them the simple necessary signs of companionship and fellowship and, and compassion. And I think that, is, that aspect of human nature has been richly illustrated here in Manchester in the immediate aftermath and in the, and in the year since the uh, arena bombing. And we've seen Manchester's, although a large urban uh, site, is manifest that same quality of human nature, that special spirit of generosity and simple direct kindness. I think today in our silence, as we remember all of those, we should also bring Salman Ramadan Abedi into this day, the boy from Fallowfield who perpetrated this terrible and wicked act of madness. Because to do so is also part of the healing process. And because we hope that our time here today will help deepen and strengthen us all. Those from Manchester and all of us. To strengthen us in wisdom and in compassion so that we can get to the root of this madness. And it's a madness that we think of as the terrorism that afflicts modern society in the last, what, 30 or 40 years. But it's actually a much deeper madness. It goes back to 
to Cain and Abel, to the first sin in the biblical vision, to human violence, which arises, as we see from that biblical story, from sadness and anger. God says to Cain, why are you sad and angry? Why do you feel rejected? And then he says to Cain, take a moment, wait. Because sin is waiting at the door, ready to pounce. And the sin, the first time I think that the word sin is mentioned in the Bible, that sin is not so much the eating of the, of the, of the fruit from the forbidden tree, that's part of our human evolution. But the real sin is the raising of our hand against our neighbor. So it's this cycle of violence which has been with us from prehistory. It's that that we are here to make a small contribution to break, to commit ourselves to the breaking of that cycle of violence which repeats itself endlessly and finds new and terrible forms of expression from, from the time of Cain and Abel to modern Syria to Manchester last year. So we're here so that we can get a little closer to the roots of this scourge of violence and to end to break its connection with fake religiosity. That no religion can justify its acts of violence in the name of God. That is a blasphemy. As religious and non-religious people here, we want to help a new kind of religious consciousness to grow in the 21st century. It will bring with it a new idea, a new concept of holiness. That should be the goal of all religion, holiness. Be holy as I am holy, God says. A secular word for that holiness could be integrity or wholeness or fullness or flourishing. We need a new idea of holiness. It is not based upon a kind of privatized conformity or a privatized relationship to God or a personal enlightenment, but is based upon also a sincere respect for each other's different paths and ways of expression, religious or non-religious based on non-competitive relationships, non-condemnatory relationships, relationships in which we can generally learn from each other and each other's wisdom, cooperating for the common good and for the healing of the wounds that we inflict or human beings inflict on each other. 
And I think here today we would all want religion to be seen not as a justification for that dark side of human nature, but to be seen as a source of enlightenment and of inspiration about what human beings can be, and to be a source of healing when, as we will, we fail. And to raise our consciousness about this, and if we raise it here today, we will raise it globally in a small way, the beating of a butterfly's wings felt throughout the cosmos. To raise our consciousness about this, we will listen to words of wisdom from each of the great wisdom traditions gathered here. We will take part in a symbolic ritual after lunch, a ritual of unity in which the symbols of, of, our, of, the, of all the diversity of our cultures will be held in, in, in union. But the heart of this gathering today will be contemplative. So it's a little more low-key, a little smaller, a little quieter than the great celebration that took, part, that took place here on Tuesday. Both are necessary. And the most important element, therefore, on the schedule today will be our times of silence. And I'd like to say a few words about silence. It's a little paradoxical to speak about silence, but that's what I do. And uh, so you can't stop me. The word con contemplation is an interesting word. It comes from the word, it includes the word templum, temple. Well, this is a temple, this cathedral. But the word templum originally meant not the building, the structure, it meant the space in which a structure might be built or might not be built, a sacred space. It doesn't refer to either physical structure or even to a dogmatic conceptual structure of ideas and beliefs. So the templum is an open space. It's not about stones or dogma. It is the pure, spacious, full emptiness that some of us here call God, but which everyone has equal and immediate access to. And how do we know that we have entered this spaciousness? It's very easy for us to be in the, in the structures we build, physical or conceptual, and forget the space that we are actually occupying and why that stru those structures have been built in the first place. So how do we know that we are indeed in the spaciousness of the temple? I think it is because of the effect it has on us when we enter into that temple of the heart. We feel touched by it. We feel known 
by it. And we know ourselves better because of that. And the effect is to make us more loving human beings. This is why the Dalai Lama can say, my religion is kindness. He also said, I think Buddhism is the best religion because I'm a Buddhist. So each of us here might say the same. I just greeted the, the, uh, the rabbi uh, this morning and I, I remembered um, a friend of mine, a rabbi in Washington, Harold White, who uh, I asked to give a talk once at our center there on, does God have favorites? And he said, he gave a wonderful talk. He said when he was a young man, a young Jew, he said, yes, of course, God has favorites. It's the Jewish people, it's the chosen people. He said, as I got older, I began to think, no, God doesn't have favorites. And then he said, as he became an old man, he said, I realized that God does have favorites. And God's favorites are those in need, the Anawim, the poor, the marginal, those without a voice, those without status. So Harold had grown into that true temple and had come through his own personal journey to that universal vision. Contemplation is the heart of all religions and the basis of true civilization simply because it is the essence of our humanity. So when I talk about meditation now, I'm not talking just about some brand of meditation. Not saying that one way of prayer or one way of meditation is better than another. I'm trying to explore why this templum, this spaciousness, is common to us all and opens up for us the common ground. But we do need some way of entering into that, especially in the kind of world we have created today. You don't have to be religious to meditate, of course. And this allows meditation to open the common ground of our humanity and to fulfill its potential. There's a lot of very interesting scientific research into the effects of meditation, which is a contemplative practice, a way that leads us into this templum. New MRI technology, for example, allows us to see how our brains work. We can identify that part of our brain activity where, for example, we think about ourselves, where we fantasize, where we focus on our own desires or our cravings or our problems. It's called the posterior cingulate cortex. So next time you start thinking about yourself, you know where it's happening. Or we're able to see how that part of the brain 
which is the most primitive, called the amygdala, which controls our instinct to fight or to flee or to freeze when we are confronted with something frightening. Meditation research shows that the activity in these parts of our brain is slowed down dramatically when we meditate. We stop thinking only about ourselves and we are no longer driven by our survival instincts. Maybe that was what God was asking Cain to do. Just cool it for a bit. I don't think this research explains, it certainly describes in a way that we all find interesting and important today in the scientific uh, research. I don't think it explains the deep meaning or the mystery of what is happening. But the me center of the brain is quite uh, demonstrably deactivated and as we become less me-centered, we recover the capacity, our essential human capacity, to think of others, to see from the other person's point of view, empathy, and to act for others on their behalf without counting the costs for ourselves and even essentially to love each other. Now the effects of this contemplative practice are remarkable and also remarkably obvious. You don't have to put yourself under an MRI scan in order to realize the effects of meditation in your life. There are two ways we can look at it. We can look at it in terms of the benefits that we can measure. Our cardiovascular system, our level of stress, our sleep patterns, our immune system. Uh, there's an endless list of all the benefits that meditation brings. There's one it doesn't bring. I can testify to, which is, it doesn't restore your hair. But all of these other benefits are well proven. That's one way we can look at the, the effects of this contemplative experience. But we always look deeper. Human beings always look for the meaning of the experience, something more. And so we also can look at it at, from the point of view of the fruits that this brings, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fidelity, gentleness, and self-control. And we may be made aware of these, not conceptually, but relationally young ex-U.S. Marine who had been meditating in a very disciplined way, because he was a Marine, for about two weeks, 
told me, without any religious belief, told me that he was, in, he was intent upon continuing the practice. And I said, why? He said, well, my wife told me to. She said, you know, Jim, you better keep meditating. He said, why? And she said, because you listen to me. You don't keep looking at your mobile phone when we're talking in the evening. So it may be in very simple, small ways, like the way that the people on Bear Island expressed their compassion and concern for that suffering family. It may be very simple, direct ways in which we recognize the fruits of meditation. John Main said that meditation creates community. And that's a very important insight for our world in the 21st century, a multi-religious and multicultural world. We need to be able to see ourselves in each other. The taxi driver who brought me here today was a, um, a Muslim who's wearing, I don't know how you describe it anyway, wearing robes. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you're like me today. I said, yes, come along and join us in the cathedral. I said, have you been there? He said, no. I said, well, come. So, in the 21st century, we have to see ourselves in each other and each other in ourselves. That's community. Are we content to find our community for which the young are hungering? Are we content to find it in the shopping mall or in places of entertainment alone? Or do we not seek a deeper communion with each other, that deeper communion that the contemplative space makes conscious? So often we wait for a tragedy, either a personal one or an external one, could be a terminal illness or a serious loss in our life or a terrorist attack. So often it seems we have to wait for these tragic moments to turn our attention to our need for communion and conscious community. But today, we can reflect upon the ongoing work that we need to do, day by day, in those quiet times, in between the big events of our lives, the day-to-day -day contemplative journey that awakens us in consciousness and in a certain kind of consciousness that will reduce the risk or even prevent those mad tragedies from recurring. So we're here today, a year later than after the arena, a few days after the great public grief and national commemoration in this cathedral, to pay attention, to turn our attention to this dimension, the contemplative wisdom of humanity. We will do so, as I say, through symbol, 
and through our conversation together in the times we had to talk and in listening to each other's words of wisdom from the scriptures or our sources and above all in the times of meditation. And we're here to say that in this way we may have the best way possible to help prevent similar tragedies, to break the cycle of violence and to change the hearts of those whose hearts have been filled with hatred and sadness and irrational anger. Consciousness, to open the eye of the heart to see reality as it truly is. Contemplation means this inclusive spaciousness. It doesn't mean we have to reject our own beliefs, our own traditions, which we've come to love. Religious love is a wonderful aspect of love. We love our religious wisdoms and traditions. But we also need to practice a detachment from them. To say that this may not be the only way of seeing the world or explaining things. And others who have different ways need equal respect as we do. It means developing our capacity, therefore, for listening and so learning from each other. It's only if we can truly learn from each other, not just tolerate, toleration isn't enough, not just coexist with, but actually to learn from each other. To listen, we need to develop the human faculty of silence. In our culture, we've almost forgotten what silence means. We associate it with something that's broken, it's not working, or it's turned off, like our phones, hopefully, or uh, it means we're not really enjoying ourselves. Because to enjoy, our, enjoy ourselves, we, you always have to make a lot of noise. Well, you can make noise when you enjoy yourself, but you can also enjoy yourself by being silent. Restaurants, I think, now turn up the volume of background music to make people feel that they are having a good time, which means it's almost impossible for them to speak to each other. On planes and trains, there are endless unnecessary announcements, usually to sell something, uh, to sa but also to save people the encounter with that opportunity to be silent and to be truly, peacefully, and finally, with themselves. This loss of respect for silence damages us individually, communally, and socially. And our constructed temples, synagogues, churches, and mosques would be far more influential far more transformative if they recovered an experience of silence, a space of silence within their different ways of worship. 
The word silence only came to mean the absence of sound quite, quite late. Before that, it meant being still, being quiet. Silence purifies the mind and opens the heart. It allows us to lay aside our continuous stream of fantasy and imagination, anxiety and desire. It makes us more real in that process because it leads us to a new depth of being, a new depth of consciousness where, and we discover this with a deep sigh of relief, we can simply be ourselves. And we can allow God simply to be who God is. We don't have to play any games. Silence, therefore, brings us to truth, to self-knowledge, and so to that knowledge of the true God, not our image of God, but God who is truth. So Meister Eckhart, great mystic of the 13th century, said, there is nothing so much like God as silence. But silence, as we know from the Upanishads, is work. Happy the person who has found their work, one of the Upanishads says. And happy the person who has found the work of silence. And happy that person who knows that silence is work. And although it is work, it's a work we love. How often do people say, I love my job, I really love what I'm doing? It's wonderful when you meet somebody who says that. Well, the work of silence is a job that we come to love. Children fall in love with silence, with this work of meditation, as soon as they are introduced to it confidently by a teacher or parent. They can meditate. They love to meditate, and that fact should give us all great hope for the future. As soon as we start this work of silence, by laying aside our thoughts and plans and memories, our attachment to the past or to our anxieties about the future, as soon as we begin to loosen the grip of those repeated obsessive patterns of thought that accompany us for decades, as soon as we begin to come out of that tight little space into the big space of the heart, so as soon as we begin this work of silence, we begin to slow down. Perhaps that is what the world needs most urgently. Keep up 
this work of silence, make it a part of your life, part of your worship, part of your meetings, part of your family life. Keep up this work and you soon come to see what stillness means. And why the psalm says, be still and know that I am God. And how energizing and refreshing this stillness is. When we don't have to play a role, religious or otherwise, we don't have to identify ourselves with our labels, our status, or the way other people see us. We don't have to evaluate ourselves, either as good or bad, or pretend to be better than we are, or beat ourselves up for being worse than we are. But where we can be ourselves and know ourselves, to be bathed in love, that love that is the source of being, the ground of being, and from which all existence, joy and tragedy included, flows. So that's why I think we're here, just to take a little time to remember on our own behalf, but also on behalf of others, and on those we work with, live with, and serve, to remember this very obvious truth. There's nothing very unusual or esoteric in what I've said. To take a little time to reflect upon it, and to, because the more people there are who see this connection, the more wise people there will be in the world. And it says, as it says in the Book of Wisdom, the hope for the healing of the world is the greatest number of wise people. It doesn't say how many, but a few more than we have at the moment anyway. So I want to thank you for coming and thank, uh, thank all those who have helped to bring us together and into this beautiful space, allowing us to discover the true temple, that great open, full emptiness of the, of the space within our own hearts. And I'd like to invite you now, after a little stretch, to um, take a, we'll take a time of meditation, our first uh, full period of meditation. And, um, I suggest we just take a couple of minutes now to stretch and I'll, I'll ring a bell when a couple of minutes is over, so don't wander too far. But if you'd like to just have a little organized stretch, you could do this. Just stand up and uh, stretch your ha hands above your head. And lean back a little bit, not too far. And then you could bring your arms out, shoulder uh, 
length like this, this great symbol of welcome, of openness, beginning of an embrace. This is the this is the posture that we adopt in meditation interiorly. And then bring your hands together over your heart in this great universal symbol. of prayer, but also of recognizing the spirit of goodness in everyone we meet. Let's just stand uh, for a moment, and as we stand, feel the weight of your body being pulled down to the center of the planet by gravity. At the same time that we're pulled down, we can also stretch up. That helps us to be more alert, more awake. The Buddha once said, no one is enlightened when they are asleep. And Jesus said, stay awake and pray. So our physical posture and readiness is very useful just before a period of meditation. So relax your shoulders. Relax the muscles of your face, your forehead, your jaw. So we want, when we sit to meditate in a, in a moment, we should uh, try to sit as still as possible. That external stillness and external silence will help to build up the silence of our community here today. And to help us to do that, let's just take a moment to pay attention to your breathing. You don't have to breathe in a particular method, but just be conscious of that cycle of breath which accompanies us from the first to the last moment of our existence. We breathe about, I forget now, I think it's 20,000 times a day. Let's just be conscious of two or three of those cycles of breath where we breathe in the gift of life Just to be conscious of that is to fill us with gratitude. Not gratitude because we had this or had that, or we've achieved this or that, but the gratitude that comes from being, from being conscious of the gift of being. That's the true thankfulness. And because it is a gift, we can't hold our breath indefinitely, we, we release it. We breathe out, we let it go, we share it back with others. So the very act of breath, of breathing, is a universal symbol 
of what meditation is about and what life is all about, accepting the gift of being and letting it go, returning it. The body is always in the present moment. That's why the body never lies. But the mind is very rarely in the present moment. That's why we don't really know half the time what we're thinking. So we can allow the body now to be an anchor, to be a friend, to bring the mind, to anchor the mind in the present moment, which is Another way of understanding the meaning of meditation, contemplation, simply to be and to be simple in the present moment. There is no other. Okay, let's sit down. Some of you will, of course, have your own uh, way of meditation, in which case you will practice that. Some of you may like to know of a way of meditation, which I'll share with you now briefly, which is a, both, which is a very universal way, a way of the prayer of the heart that we find in all the great uh, traditions. And this involves taking a word word that is sacred in your own tradition or a short phrase and repeating it in the mind and heart during the time of the meditation. Laying aside your thoughts, even good thoughts, even holy thoughts, even brilliant thoughts if you have any. We lay aside all our thoughts in order to make this human pilgrimage from the mind to the heart. Choosing the word is important because you stay with the same word all the way through the meditation. And you keep returning to it when you get distracted, when you start thinking of lunch or the meaning of life or what you're going to be doing this weekend. So keep returning to the word is this the simple art of meditation in this way. So you can choose a word of your own or a word from your own tradition. If you'd like a suggestion, the word I would recommend is this Aramaic word, Maranatha. And if you choose that word, say it as four syllables, Maranatha. Ma ra na tha. Whatever word you choose, listen to the word as you say it, interiorly, silently, and keep returning to it when the mind becomes distracted. So we'll meditate now 
about 20 minutes and I'll time the meditation with the gong here.